Hello and welcome to a new feature on the Island Life series. I'm Bob Harrison and over the next six weeks I'll be looking at some iconic buildings across this Isle of Man, talking to various experts with a view to bringing these buildings alive and revealing some of their history. In the first of this new series I'm talking to Charles Gard about Milntown Estate in the north of the island, leaving Ramsey on the Lazare Road, passing Ramsey Grammar School and signposted Milntown Estate entrances on the left, leading you straight into the parkland with its large area of grass. The CycleFest have actually been using this area successfully over the last few years. There's plenty of hard standing spaces, follow the signs. I head towards the house via an inviting canopy and tunnel of various sized trees and there is the surprise of this wonderful smooth clean front edifice of the main house. A main house that says, I'm a house with no apologies. You're absolutely right. Every time I come down this drive, I think, what an amazing structure. It's like a great iced cake <laughs> rising up out of the ground. And as you say, no holds barred. It's all flummery and decoration and castellations and wonderful chimneys. It's a fantastic building. And you've been doing work on here and you've discovered more things. We have, to our astonishment, uh, <laughs> In the 1960s, uh, the previous owner, Sir Clive, was persuaded to cover the entire building on the outside with a black webbing and some sort of pitch. Someone explained to him that this would waterproof it. Okay. Uh, now, we decided to take the uh, stuff off this large porch area earlier in the year, and to our astonishment, we discovered all this wonderful Gothic detail. Lion's heads, uh, little gargoyles, cement roses, all the catrophores and everything, which haven't been seen for 50 or 60 years. And it all was wrecked underneath. It all had to be very carefully restored, which Rob Jones spent quite a lot of time doing for us uh, with the right sort of cement, and he's recreated all the detail. And it is now as it was in 1813. It's absolutely superb. And, and the good thing about it, it, it adds to it, doesn't it? It doesn't detract at all. Not at all, no. I mean, um, Deemster Christian, who put this facade on, although he was a man, I think, totally without humour, you read some of the things he said in Deemster the papers. Deemster without humour? Goodness <laughs> me, I find that hard to believe. Well, a lot of Deemsters I know are full of humour. He was deadly serious, my goodness. He used to rail on about the immorality of Douglas. In fact, he made Douglas sound quite an attractive place, but he must have had all these cases coming up in front of him. Despite all that, he has done a building here which is just extraordinary. Do you actually know the architect of this building? That's a very good question, and the answer is no. Oh dear. We don't know who did this building. Uh, we do know there was a mansion here on this very site in 1750, and before that there was a huge mansion in the trees to the side here, and that's the building, now just the remains of the walls underground, that Ilium Doan was born in. But that was totally cleared away in 1750, and the tenant here, uh, uh, a Captain John Llewellyn of Ramsey, who was renting the estate from the Christians, built a small Georgian house. And you can still see, if you know where to look, the house is still in there. And it was in 1830 that Deemster Christian extended it and put this wonderful front on. But no, we don't know who the architect was that he used. Were the talents of Deemster Christian enough to actually get him to build it, you know, design it? Uh, well, that's a, another good question because there is a building on Peel Road very much altered. But Peter Kelly showed me a photograph of it before it was altered. 
Um, and it was almost identical to this. The same catrofoils, the same decorative turrets and everything. So I think uh, that Deemster Christian, who at that time in 1830 was living in the Fort Anne, waiting for this to be done, was probably going in his Landau along the Peel Road and saw that and thought, that's exactly what I want. And it could be that the architect of that did this. Um, but how quickly he did it. I mean, in 1828, uh, Dorothy Wordsworth, the sister of the poet laureate, paid a visit here. She described it as a very run-down, dowdy little house. That was the old Georgian mansion. Four years later, his honour was in here, and all this was done. I'd love to know who his builders were. We could certainly do with them today. Yeah. <laughs> yes. They don't build fast nowadays, do they? <laughs> Never mind. You were saying about the original house over there in the woodland. Mm. Have you tried to say excavate it? Well, actually we have. Two years ago, I uh, authorised a one-week dig done by professional archaeologists. They dug trenches, a very like time team, and on the last day they did a trench in the wood here, and there we found quite clearly the footings of what must have been a building where we thought it would be. We actually have a plan of the old building. The plan was drawn in 1750 by Captain Llewellyn when he said to the Christians in the UK where they were living, this is the building I want to pull down. So we know the shape and the size of it, it was huge. And at some point we will get a ground penetrating radar over here to see if we can find the rest of the uh, footings underground. Because it's worthwhile history trying to find, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's the one bit of the story we didn't know about. I must give credit to Nigel Crow, who went to the archives in Cumbria and discovered all this quite accidentally three years ago. And in all the histories you get of this house and all the stories of the family, no one had ever mentioned that the old building was razed to the ground in 1750 and a new one put up. So it was an absolute revelation. There's quite a big link between this building and Cumbria, isn't there? There is, because the Christians had estates in Cumbria, in Lancashire as well. They were an extraordinarily wealthy family. They had coal fields over there, and they, the family split. They married into the Kerwins. You know how complex these genealogies are. The Christians and the Kerwins, and they uh, were very, very close, as you say. And after William Doan was shot... Uh, I think the Christians sort of said, well, the Isle of Man's not the place for us for a while. And they all went to live over there. And this estate here was, was leased out for many years. Do we know actually when it became an estate with that house on it? Was the house built sort of after the estate? Because these were sort of quite wild times, weren't they, in, in the history of the Isle of Man? Very much so. We do know that in 979, the Battle of Sky Hill took place right on these grounds because Sky Hill is just behind us there. My theory is, and it's purely speculative, is that one of these Vikings, uh, uh, who would have been worshipping, you know, Thor and Wodin and the Valkyries and all that lot, um, one of them perhaps converted to Christianity and he became known as the Christian and they probably settled around here and we know from 1408 there was a Deemster Christian and we know from the 1500s that they were on this estate here. But when that house was built, well part of it probably goes back to the early 1500s. And can you actually see that inside the house? Well inside this one yeah. is only from 1750 Don't of course, okay. 1750, but yeah. you can see uh, the 1750 building inside this 1830 exterior. And have you got plans of the original one that, that is indeed inside this one? 
We, we do have, uh, yes, actually, uh, Captain Llewellyn, when he was proposing that he would build this, he drew a simple child's drawing of the facade and a plan, as well as the plan of the old building. So uniquely, we have those stages. It's a shame they didn't have to get planning permission in them <laughs> days, isn't it? We could have had the application. Yeah, but let's be honest. If you had planning permission in those days, there's no way you'd have the Lexi Wheel or Milner's Tower. They'd be far too big. Staying on the outside of the main house at Milntown, we went through the light and airy restaurant into the courtyard and then on into the spacious gardens. Were these once formal gardens, as is featured in so many houses of this size, I asked Charles. Probably were laid out to some extent by Deemster Christian in the 1830s. How much of that is still here, we don't know. The, there is a double avenue of beech trees, or there was, they've sadly rotted away and fallen down, down the side here. And we do have the biggest elm tree on the Isle of Man here, probably dating from around the mid-18th century. So that could have been planted by Captain Llewellyn. And um, the rest of it has, has evolved over the years, I think, and we are now completely reworking them. There's 15 acres here, so there's quite a lot to get stuck into. But as we said when we, at the beginning of the programme, to walk through the parkland and park the car and then walk through and find the building, and then all of a sudden a lot of people get a lot of enjoyment from the gardens. Absolutely. The first thing is this massive clump of rhododendrons on the side, which has every colour when it comes out in May. And then having gone through the cafe, we have the formal vegetable gardens at the back and the walled garden and then the forest walks. The mill, the mill pond, and my ambition is to plant a maze, which we're working on at the moment. We have sponsorship for it. We'll be planting that next year in the shape of the Isle of Man because every country house has to have a maze. And as far as the gardens are concerned, who are the people that want to come round? Are they ladies of a certain age with a bag taking little clippings as they go round? Well, we don't encourage the little clippings because <laughs> we do have a plant sale stall so that people don't have to <laughs> rip bits off. To be honest, it's everybody comes round. The kids love it because we've got treasure hunts all the time, so they love feeding the ducks and seeing the pheasants and all the other things. Uh, obviously, King Gardeners does garden tours in the summer. We have lots of members of the Christian family from America. They pilgrimage all the way here from America Goodness. because they uh, often claim they're descended from Ilium Doan. And that's great. We are, in, in effect, the family home for the Christians around the world. So everybody enjoys the gardens. After checking out the gardens, Charles and I moved inside the main house at Milntown, stayed on the ground floor of the building. First, we went into the dining room, complete with a vast table ready for a dozen guests, into the attractive and welcoming entrance hall, and then on into the impressive library with, as you would expect, shelves of period books and furniture. Charles produced some original plans, one of which showed a farm layout with numerous outbuildings. Well, I've grown up over, over generations. You can see the Glenalden River at the bottom and we have the, um, the chimney chamber where they smoked uh, meat and fish and the line of little buildings here, the hall, the parlour and so on. A typical Manx farm, though a big one. I mean, it's not like some of the little Thaltons on the hill. This was a huge area with gardens and the haggard and, and cow sheds and everything. So it was a pretty prosperous operation. And who was the farmer? The Christians. The Christians, The, Christians, the Deemsters Christian. Yeah. Yes, yes. So they were quite well up in society on the island. Not only well up, but extremely wealthy. 
This wasn't the only property they owned. Uh -huh. They brought in rents. They owned Sky Hill. They owned all the land from here into Ramsey, where the golf course is, and north to the Selby River. So their rents were what made them wealthy. And, of course, they were nearly all deemsters and receiver generals. They were very much in with the Derbys. Uh, they were a family to be taken seriously. But at that time... You had to be in with the derbies, didn't you? Oh, most definitely. You, you, <laughs> you weren't going to go again them. You weren't, no. Though there are some theories that Ilium Doan, when he surrendered the Isle of Man, was trying to get rid of the derbies and maybe put the Christians in, but there's no evidence of that. No, it was a very clear hierarchical system in those days. The derby, the Earl and his court, the Isle of Man was gifted to him by the Crown and anyone here on the Isle of Man was his servant. Do we know where their wealth came from, the, 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 the Christian family? It, well, how it all started, I don't know, but they had mills here, a mm. lot of mills. And, of course, mills were gold mines because everybody had to have their corn and their flax and everything milled. And you took uh, revenue from that. You gave royalties to the, the earl, of course. But uh, mostly it was rentals. The more land you acquired by marriage, of course, very shrewd marriages, they married into the Tubman family, the Kerwin family in the UK and stuff, and gradually your lands come together and the rents. And you actually uh, receive cheques here every year for sitting on your backside. Were they respected? Liked? Um, Are you aware? I'm not aware of that. Certainly the Earl of Derby wrote to his son and said that these uh, Christians are everywhere and you really do have to take account of them. Okay. So although he was the supreme power, he obviously realised that without keeping them happy, things could be made very difficult for him. So when did the farm finally become a bigger house? Well, that, as I say, this was totally cleared away in 1750, by which time it was declared derelict. Uh, the Christians had left after the Ilium Done debacle. So at the end of the 17th century, they went away to their quarters in England and they rented this out. We don't know who all the tenants are. We simply know that in 1750, Captain John Llewellyn, who was a big character in, in Ramsey, um, a very wealthy man, owned all sorts of properties. He was renting this and he said, let's demolish the old one and build this new Georgian house he was quite a good draftsman actually wasn't he because we got the plan his suggested plan of the building yeah yep. I'd, I'd be pleased to try <laughs> to produce something like that there's one or two farmhouses up the north of the island man here when you see them in real life they are exactly like that and they're very substantial houses that looks a bit like a doll's house but when you see it in reality it is a very fine mid-century georgian mansion and llewellyn lived in it he lived in it he lived in it, and um, he died uh, a couple of decades later, and it was passed down to various... The, the lease was passed down to various members of his family. It wasn't really until Deemster Christian, who was um, a very erudite man, got first at Cambridge, was living in England, and wrote to someone on the Isle of Man to say that... Um, he didn't think the Isle of Man would be where he would earn his living. It was very backward. Society was very petty and small. He felt he could do better uh, for the Isle of Man in England. And shortly afterwards, the Duke of Athol, as it was then, offered him the position as second deemster, and he was over the next week. <laughs> and when was this added to? Because the building that we've got there, that we're looking at at present, is what, 
two-thirds of the existing facade? If, if that, yes. He came over in the 1820s and he could not move into here, into this Georgian mansion, because it was tenanted. There was a widow and her three daughters living here in rather reduced circumstances. So he lived reduced in... Reduced circumstances. <laughs> no, well, it was reduced for, for those days. Um, he lived in the Fort Anne. He leased the Fort Anne. And as soon as uh, Mrs. Cubbon died and the lease came back to him, he started immediately, probably by 1829, to put this fantastic facade on to add to the side here the... Uh, living room, the apartments above, and the wing at the back, and, and all sorts of stuff. And I think he must have done that within two or three years, because we do know he was living here in about 1832 with his family. And where the present restaurant is, would that have been an orangery or something like that? No, there was nothing there. Nothing there. There was just the uh, a courtyard at the back with a little conservatory down the side. When we took over, uh, that was there. We've removed the conservatory and put the restaurant in. In the same style, I mean, it's most essential, I think you'd agree, I hope you'd agree, that what we've added, including the self-catering apartments at the back, have enhanced the property. We haven't altered the core, core of the building, um, but we have added on in the same architectural style. Uh, we were offered a glass and steel construction, and exactly, we turned that down. And uh, Glenn Kinraid, who was one of our trustees at the time, who's an absolutely brilliant draftsman um, and designer. He did all this for us. Um, a wonderful job as well. Now, the actual building has had quite a history because I was reading somewhere it was a girls' school? The Christian family went bankrupt in 1886. That was the end of the Christian line. And um, Mr. William, the Reverend William Bell Christian, uh, on his third wife and tenth child, dropped dead and left such debts that his wife was declared bankrupt and it was taken over by the insurance company, at which point she rented it back from them and, as you say, opened a school for the daughters of gentlemen. And apparently it was very successful. It was subscribed to by all the, you know, intelligentsia and cognoscenti on the Isle of Man. The girls were given a very strict regime and there's old photographs of this library that we're sitting in with... Um, uh, a big map of Africa on the wall and geometric shapes up here. So they'd have had their studies in here and the dormitories upstairs. Eventually, uh, she gave that up and it became a hotel and then it became a private house. Two people that lived in it were Mr. and Mrs. Yates of Yates's Wine Lodge. <laughs> they actually uh, lived on the island. Charles Yates was educated at King William's College. They retired here. And when it was too big for them, they sold it to Lady Edwards from Wales. And she was a multi-millionaireess who was escaping the surtax that Labour had introduced in the 1960s. So in 62, 63, she bought Milntown and came here with her son, Sir Clive, and when he died, he left it to us trustees. I, I should imagine Clive enjoyed the island, did he? He loved it, absolutely loved it. I mean, although he was extremely wealthy, there was no pomposity or side with him. He, he'd cycle into... <laughs> Ramsey to do a bit of shopping every day. He and his mate Bob Thomas, they just loved bikes and cars. And of course, they had the money to buy these um, things to restore the mill wheel and just to live here in, in considerable luxury. And it's because he was so welcomed by the Manx people that when he died, he left the house for the benefit and education of the Manx people. You are one of the four trustees for the building at present. 
have you got plans to sort of not alter it, but to, I don't know, improve it? Well, just keeping it going, actually, is, is something of a challenge. I won't make your eyes water by the cost of re-tarmacking the drive, which is one of our, our things at the moment. When you've got a property this size, with other buildings on the estate and all the trees and everything, the upkeep is, is really, really complicated. So if we can just keep it going, we'll be very happy. But we do have plans. We are trying to restore the ground floor to what it might have been in the 1830s. And you're standing in the library now, which is very different from how it was two years ago. We have gone to the Encyclopedia of British Interiors, the 1830s page, <laughs> and we've copied these wonderful pelmets, which are all made of wood and plaster, especially for us. The wallpaper is printed for us by Watts of Westminster, designed by Pugin, who did, of course, the interior of the House of Commons. And the wonderful curtains are especially made. And we've restored the library with all its books. And gradually, we're going to do the ground floor, as I think Deemster Christian would have had it in the 1830s. His wife was educated in Bath, so she would have had the latest fashions at her fingertips. And I can't believe the house wasn't absolutely splendid. Upstairs is a bit like a rabbit warren, isn't it? Staircases everywhere. Yeah, I love houses that have got lots of staircases, you know. <laughs> to me, it's the proof of a really big house. We're going to leave upstairs mostly as it is because it was. Um, we've got Lady Edwards' apartment, Sir Clive's bedroom and everything. And I find when you do house tours, people love uh, seeing things as they were in the 60s and 70s. And they'll say, oh, my grandmother used to have one of those and stuff. It brings it close to people. So uh, it is a higgledy-piggledy uh, mess. Architecturally, I don't know that it's satisfactory. You asked earlier who the architect was. The one architect we know it wasn't was John Welch. Now, John Welch designed the Tower of Refuge and King William's College and other. He wrote very, very sarcastically. He said, if you want to see how a wealthy man can absolutely make an absolute pig's yeah. ear of a house, then go and look at Milne Town. He was not impressed. <laughs> he wasn't. No, it could have been professional jealousy, I don't know. But there are some peculiarities. I mean, you go up the staircase and you go through that door that's rammed up against the ceiling into Lady Edwards's apartments, and that is peculiar. It's like that Alice in Wonderland door. It is a full-size door, but because it's rammed against the ceiling, season, uh, ceiling it looks like a, a miniature one. But... I mean, if you think about it, I don't know how else you could get into those apartments because they were added on to the Georgian house. And also in the dining room, which is just a wonderful, wonderful room with the tables and the chairs set up, there's a false door in the corner, isn't there? A false door? No. Uh, oh, no, no. It's, uh, it does actually go into a little room at the back, oh. which is now a cold fridge for the restaurant. <laughs> it used to be a cocktail bar when it was a hotel, but it's not actually a false door, it's just one we don't use. We see all these doorways here used to have two doors on them, uh, as in many country houses, the outer door and the inner door. And every country house I've gone to where there's been National Trust volunteers, I've said, do you know why each room has two doors? And no one can definitively give me the answer. Some say it's to keep the draft out, some say to keep the noise out, some say so that the servants couldn't overhear you. But, I mean, they could easily quietly open the outer door and put their ear to the inner one. I don't know. Someone has removed all the outer doors, unfortunately. So each room now only has one door. But uh, at some point, we might, we might try and put the other doors back. 
You're always appealing for people who have got memories of Milntown to get in touch. Do you get surprised by the people who reply to you? Oh, definitely. Uh, there's people who delivered coal here, who were gardeners, who uh, knew the cook, who, who knew Sir Clive or, or were his friends. They've got all sorts of memories of coming here. Um, <clears throat> often Sir Clive might be swimming stark naked in the pond uh, in, the, in the summer, and why not, you know, it's his private He's land. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, all sorts of interesting memories. And his dinner parties were famous because he would often cook the dinner himself, and then everyone would sit in the hall here, and on the balcony above he had two massive hi-fi speakers, and they would have to listen to Beethoven symphonies and stuff being blasted through there and then go in for the, for the pudding. <laughs> What's your earliest memory of this place? Well, uh, I never met Sir Clive. He died before I came here. I was invited up by the trustees, actually, to a meeting, and I thought they were going to ask my advice on some heritage matter. And when I sat down, they said, Charles, um, would you like to be a trustee? Well, Yes, thank you. That's marvellous. <laughs> Didn't have to think very uh, long no, about that. No, no, no. Um, and and I was vaguely aware that it was here, but to my shame, I mean, it's a private house. I'd never been in. I'd never come up the drive. It was a complete mystery behind the trees. You depend on volunteers like so many charitable organisations. I should imagine they just get wrapped up in the history of the place. They love it. Um, they, they have to learn all about the history, of course, because they do the house tours. And twice a week during the summer months, we do full tours of the house. And uh, we couldn't manage the place without the volunteers. And, you know, as you say, they are a key element of any place like this. You're proud of it. Very, very proud. I mean, what a project to be involved with. It's a real privilege. In this first of a new six-part series on the Isle of Man's iconic buildings, I've focused on the Milntown estate on the outskirts of Ramsey, talking to trustee Charles Gard. Can I thank all the staff for their help? And if you have any spare time to be a volunteer, they would welcome you with friendly open arms. Please contact the house or check their Milntown estate Facebook page. Good news is that the area inside is now being tarmacked. Also, this year, hopefully the maze is going to come about. Next week, in the second in this series, I'm looking at King William's College and its history with historian Mike Hoy. To listen to this programme again, please check out manxradio.com, click on the Listen Again feature or check the podcasts. Mark Tyler is next with Greatest Hits for this week. Goodbye.